Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to episode 68 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Today's interview is with Clay Schwinn from University of Washington, Bothell, guest hosted by Carrie Kincannon from Oregon State University. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on social media at Advising Podcast. Now, on to the interview. So let's welcome back to the podcast, Carrie Kincannon from Oregon State University. Carrie, how are you? I'm doing well, Matt. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. And for those who missed Carrie's interview or you want to listen to it again, Carrie was a guest on episode 55 titled New Ways of Thinking. And now Carrie is back with us as a guest host. So Carrie, I turn it over to you to introduce your guest. Excellent, Matt. So I'm so excited to be here today and and talk to my friend and Pacific Northwest colleague, Clay Schwinn from the University of Washington. Clay, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you doing, Carrie? I'm great. Um, So Clay, hey, I'm going to read your bio and give us a little sense of what you're bringing to the table here in the conversation, and and then we'll we'll dive into some questions. So folks, Clay Schwinn is the Director of Academic Services for the School of Nursing and Health Sciences at the University of Washington Bothell Campus. He supports a team of 10 committed academic advisors, fieldwork recruiting and retention managers, program coordinators, and student staff. His advising career started as a peer advisor in the University of Washington Psychology Department after one of his residents, uh, so Clay was a resident advisor, uh, told him about the job and said she thought he'd be perfect for it. That led to a nearly 30-year academic uh, advising career serving University of Washington, several University of Washington programs, and that includes biology, student-athlete academic services, undergraduate academic affairs advising, and bioengineering. He joined the Foster School of Business to oversee student leadership programs, and in partnership with Capstone faculty, created the Strategic Management Case Competition, which grew to be the largest single-day case competition in the world. Clay's advising philosophy is grounded in nurturing and maintaining meaningful relationships with students and peers, and a passion for synthesizing experiences with them as they dedicate themselves to achieving their goals. Uh, Lily Tomlin said, I always wondered why somebody doesn't do something about that, and then I realized I was somebody. Clay hopes to create somebody's. Love that quote, Clay. Um, In 1997, he attended his first Nakata Regional Conference and has been involved with Nakata ever since. In 2006, he was the co-creator of the University of Washington Advising Podcast, which led uh, over 100 episodes and earned a Nakata Region 8 Best in Region Presentation Award and then Nakata Outstanding Advising Technology Innovation Certificate of Merit. He has served Nakata as a regular conference proposal reader, a member of the awards selection committee, chair of the technology and advising commission, and is the pre-conference co-chair for the Nakata annual conference being held October 23rd, 26th in Portland, Oregon. So be there, be square, right? We're going to... We're going to promote that for sure. Um, in uh, 2012, he was recognized with Nakata Region 8 Excellent and Advising 
and uh, Nakata Global Outstanding Advising Primary uh, Role Awards. And Clay says he's been rusting on his laurels ever since, and I know he's kidding about that for sure because he brings it all the time. Um, outside of University of Washington, Clay is a spouse, a dad, a burn survivor, a Disney fan, and enjoys cooking and cocktails often at the same time. Uh, so Clay, what an well, exciting that's all the time we have! Uh, yeah, <laughs> for tuning in today. So we just got got you know filled up our whole hour with the biography there. So so, so much so much to work with there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think I wanted to start just by you know talking about our our context. I mean, I think I've known you since the early aughts, right? Probably some early regional conference, and and you know we have some commonalities. I mean, we're at Pacific Northwest research institutions, Pac-12 institutions. We have a longevity at our institutions. So I know you've been uh, UW at various campuses for, like we said, 30 years, and I've been at Oregon State for for over 20. Um, and you know, you've had uh, that chance to share your talents with a lot of UW offices and campuses, and and that you know, that really piques my interest. I've sort of observed that from afar. And really appreciated the trajectory of your career. And so I think that's where I want to start. Um, you know, I know that across the country, a lot of campuses are exploring and implementing career ladders for advisors as a way to retain, you know, talent on their campuses, and particularly those advisors who have advancement aspirations. And I think you have a lot, a lot of wisdom to share here in terms of the, the arc that you've taken with your career. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about your path, maybe starting as a peer advisor and moving into this professional uh, positions and what has shaped the choices that you've made, what's guided your decision-making and sort of transitioning to these different positions over the years. So uh, thanks, Carrie. That's a, that's a great question to start with. And, and especially in the context of career ladders, it's, it's, uh, you know, something that I think the advising profession overall has, evolved its thinking on. And I've seen that evolution that, that when I first started in, you know, advising in, in 1992, there was no real discussion of like, well, here's sort of the, the, the strategy for building a career. And here are the benchmarks that you might want to reach at three years and five years and 10 years. And, and if you, you know, sort of evolve over that time, you'll advance from an advisor to a senior advisor, to a lead advisor, to an assistant director. And, and so some of that, that uh, has, has firmed up a little bit uh, within the field itself. Um, And, and so if I look at my own career, I really feel like um, it, it was having great mentors who were advising me about that exact thing of here are the types of things that you should be involved in um, with regard to campus level or departmental service committees. So a couple examples that that sort of came to mind, you know, I, I had when I was in the biology department, I, so I should probably encapsulate my career a little bit um, that I started as a peer advisor in the psychology department my senior year. And, and then at the end of that year, the person who was the director of the central advising office at the time uh, needed some additional advising help for summer orientations. 
And so he offered me uh, a 50% position to help out with some orientations. And then I continued as a 50% peer advisor through the summer. And then when I graduated, I, I ended up kind of filling in for a variety of um, maternity leaves or long-term care leaves. I, I sort of just kind of kicked around and said yes to any opportunity, any advising opportunity that came along and was able to sort of string together a pretty interesting series of, of three to six month gigs. And then, and then ended up landing my first full-time permanent position uh, about a year after that. And that was the biology department. Uh, I had been filling in for a maternity leave and then they created a, a 50% position while I was there and, and, and took that uh, took that job. So, uh, when I, when I think about, um, sort of how did I, you know, gain experiences and, and evolve my career, it was really kind of taking advantage of how to keep things fresh for myself. And so, you know, I had a very sort of undergraduate view of advising and, and the, um, the work that advisors do. And, and so my supervisor in the biology department ended up putting me on the grad admissions committee. Um, and, and so I got just a, a, a drastically different perspective on um, how to handle admissions. And I, I, I think of that as like uh, a, a time at which I sort of, my understanding of, of the university evolved quite a bit. And, and I really, you know, started to think more clearly about all the different things that the university is really involved in. And so that is when I, I really started pursuing um, some, some outside of advising experiences like volunteering down at Harborview Medical Center because, you know, the University of Washington has a huge uh, medical system that's, that's attached to it. And becoming more um, focused on building a lot of different types of experiences that were then going to inform my advising practice. And, and sort of in the process of um, trying to persuade a, a football player that was a biology major to do the honors program, which I had, had you know, started getting involved with in the, in the biology department you know, got to know the, the advisors and student athlete services. And, you know, then when they created a new position, um, cause they needed more advising support, the, the athletic department had grown by quite a bit in terms of the number of students that they were serving expectations around, um, how much we track student athletes, um, progress towards the degree, like all of that stuff was really kind of evolving in the mid nineties. Um, there was just a, a, much stronger commitment to graduation. Um, so they, they created a new advising position and then they kind of came sniffing around and said, you know, we, we, we know you've worked with some of our student athletes and um, we think you'd be a good fit for the program. And so that I've, I felt very lucky that that opportunity kind of came my way. And so I, I jumped on it. And again, you know, just as a way to kind of keep things fresh, see a different part of the institution, um, you know, I think sometimes part of the institution that held at arm's length um, by 
by the academic um, endeavors. So, so engaging with student athlete academic services, joining them uh, as an academic advisor for for seven and a half years is just a. Um, I think the the things that I learned there were so much more about um, athletics. is is a place where the diversity mission of a lot of institutions really lives. And I'm not talking just about um, race and ethnic diversity, but really access for um, low income um, people with really, you know, coming from from literally all over the world with all kinds of different uh, high school experiences and coming into the university setting. Um, So I think I think I really learned a lot in athletics about um, diversity and and equity and inclusion and access during that era. And so, you know, I, I, I guess I don't know if I'm necessarily getting too much at your question, but I, I had a fantastic um, landscape architecture class as an undergraduate and the, the professor he he, he uh, had this quote one time in class, and I, I I just glommed onto it right away. He said, uh, "Never walk past a hole without looking into it." And what I realized is that there were so many different holes to sort of look peer into, and and th- and examine and and wonder about at a place that's as rich and diverse as the University of Washington. So so. When I'm advising new, um, you know, ad- ad- advisors who are early in their career, I always encourage them to sort of like look for the the skills that you can build to see the institution beyond just your own office. Um, and and for me, that was you know my involvement with medical center, my involvement with athletics, um, and it, it really did lead to a lot of really cool opportunities. I love that. I love that quote um, from, from your class. As, as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, this sounds like improv. You just sort of yes anded your way through um, all these different opportunities at university of Washington. And, but it's also been the scaffolding process, right? Where you've kind of accumulated all this insight and wisdom that's contributed to the next job. And so I was hoping I could tap into that wisdom a little bit and thinking about that, you know, you've navigated all these different spaces, right? You've worked with student athletes and STEM students and exploring students and business students and now, you know, health professions. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I imagine the memories and the highlights just come flooding when you think about the, the span of those those different experiences. But, you know, what are what are some of the what are some of the nuances that have arisen for, for you working with those different populations? And maybe what are some of the commonalities that you've seen in terms of working with students in those different offices? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've, I've loved working with students so much over the years because I see college as really a time of like kind of shifting identity, you know. And so if I think about like what are the what are the highlights for me, um, it's it's when I'm working with a student and helping them sort of synthesize a new version of themselves. And so, you know, the, the examples that, that sort of come to mind are, um, 
you know, you can't work in athletics without having a student who has a career ending injury um, like that. They've been a gymnast for since they were two years old. I mean, essentially since they could have walked and now they are 21 and something, you know, catastrophic has happened to their body and they cannot be a gymnast anymore. They are no longer that thing that they've been for, you know, 18, 19 years. And, um, and, and they, they helping that student navigate the, one of the scariest things in your life. Like, I mean, you know, Carrie, if I, if I, told you you you're no longer a music you're no longer a musician you're no longer can engage with music right like okay then what am i right and so i i have really loved those conversations with students um that feel rudderless at times you know and you're whitewater rafting with them and you're mm to paddle as fast as you can on one side so that you can kind of help them navigate to um, sort of a new version of themselves. So, so, so yeah, I can very specifically remember, you know, student after student after student that, um, and and in big and small ways, right? Like the, when I worked in pre-major advising, it, the it uh, one of the things that I I did while I was there was I was backup for the pre med advisor, and so usually about week four, week five of fall quarter every year, the you would just have like three days worth of appointments where students had said you know were coming in to say I failed my first chemistry test and. I'm not going to be a doctor now. Like, you know, like that's, you know, that, that, that one test is now determined to the course of their life. And so, um, you know, it's not even necessarily a matter of sort of building them back up after a failed test. It's, it's really actually, you know, poking a little bit at this idea that, you know, well, well, are you really not going to be a doctor just because you, you know, had one bad test and, you know, four weeks, five weeks into college um, and sort of, again, kind of helping them navigate that, that change in identity. Right. Mm. Um, and, and I can, I, you know, I can think of a lot of students where, no, they doubled down and they said, no, that is really part of my identity. That is, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm going to, um, I'm going to navigate a way forward um, that that enables me to to become that doctor I want to be, uh, in spite of the fact that maybe that first quarter chemistry went went poorly or something, um, you know. And similarly, um, you know, when I worked in the foster school with the leadership programs, um, really, I I was less interested in sort of the mechanics of how students were running their running their, their student organizations and far more interested in sort of, you know, how, how are students who come to the foster school going to be able to um, incorporate your organization's values into their identity. Right. And so, um, you know, we've got 
a half dozen different business fraternities. And, and so how do, um, how do you, how do you help students identify which one goes with them? And, and so really that process of, of helping the student leaders like articulate, um, you know, what it means to be a member of, um, you know, Delta Psi versus AK Psi versus, you know, any uh, combination of, of Greek letters that you can imagine. So I, 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 you know, I really enjoy that process of, um, of, of helping students sort of figure out the, the, the future version of themselves. That's really compelling. I mean, when you think about, again, the diversity of the different spaces that you've worked in, but you've had, it seems like this, this through line of, um, regardless of what you're doing, whether you're, you know, direct advising or coordinating a program or directing a, a unit of team members at the center of that seems to be identity and development, right? That their, their growth and their learning and, um, their ability to sort of make meaning of their experiences, which is kind of cool to hear that, that play out in all of these different spaces. Um, Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, here, yeah. let me, let me, I mean, it's a blast. Like, so, you know, you ask about sort of commonalities and highlights and, and it, it really goes hand in hand together for me. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and is probably a reflection of my own experience in college. You know, I, I came to the university of Washington as a, as a freshman thinking, you know, I'm going to study Russian and major in, political science and, uh, work on nuclear disarmament, um, you know, basically take on the Soviet union, um, you know, with a job in the state department (laughs) and, and then, you know, fall of my sophomore year, the Berlin wall fell and the Mm -hmm. union fell apart. And it was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm not, I'm, I'm not that anymore. And, and huh. thankfully, I had a great ed, undergraduate advisor myself who helped me sort of navigate a way forward to rethink what it is I'm really passionate about. So, Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Well, hey, let me shift gears for a second. I was, you know, I... I, um love that I'm getting you to talk to you in a podcast setting, because I think this is the medium where you made a first strong impression on me. So we mentioned at the top that, that UW advising podcast that you did with Kurt Zeist. And that was kind of the first time that um, I, that I had heard of where the, the medium of podcasting was used as a learning information tool in advising settings. I, I'm sure that there were probably parallel things going on to what you were doing, but of course, being in Region 8 and sitting in on that presentation, that award-winning presentation that you had and getting to see what, what you guys had done 
certainly left a, a mark on me. I, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the genesis of that work back in the day and 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 maybe put that in the context of what we're doing now, right? I mean, we're on an advising podcast. How do you think educationally focused podcasting has evolved since what you were doing back in 2006, seven-ish? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I thanks again. I love the question. I love to get to call out Kurt for his, um, partnership and, and, you know, we, we had a really good time with, with that podcast, you, you know, transport yourself back to 2005, 2006 and podcasts weren't really a thing like right. I, I went to, so, so Kurt and I took that best in region presentation to the annual conference that year, um, and we always started our session with, okay, you know, everybody, please stand up. Now, if you've ever listened to a podcast, um, like, it, or sorry, if you've never listened to a podcast, please sit down. And um, like three quarters of the room sat down. Right. Right. <laughs> never listened to a podcast. So, um, so, so podcasts are, are, a little more ubiquitous now, but back then, um, it was, it was a new thing. So I, um, I had started listening to a couple very early on podcasts, specifically the Ricky Gervais podcast. Um, and, uh, I was like, God, this, you know, this is such a good medium to sort of broadcast information. And, and I knew Kurt, uh, a little bit, we, like we hadn't really worked together, um, a lot, but one day I was like walking down the hall and I like knocked on his door and I'm like, Hey, Kurt, what do you, I think we should do a podcast, like an advising podcast. And he asked the, the best possible question, uh, in response, which was, well, what would it sound like? And turning that question back and, you know, over in, 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 in our heads, we really thought it should sound like advising. So it should. Um, and so we structured the advising podcast to really be focused on like what what's it going to sound like if you come into an advisor's office and ask a question. And so the early podcasts were really focused on kind of information delivery. Um, you know, what does it mean to choose to move to a satisfactory, non-satisfactory graded grading option or um you know, uh, how do I think about putting my schedule together if I'm if I'm planning on going to medical school? There, you know, some some sort of information delivery things, and I think the the later podcasts really got into highlighting student experiences and 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 highlighting, you know, what what different students were sort of bringing to the classroom different opportunities that they might be building i remember doing like a really great um podcast with uh the new they just founded the undergraduate women in business program and and we had a really you know it was just a, an opportunity to sort of highlight something that we thought was was important to the university and 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 a good next step for the institution so so that early those early podcasts were, you know, me and Kurt in my office, really having a conversation where one of us were essentially taking the role of student, one mm -hmm. of us take the role of the advisor, and we kind of go back and forth and then edit it down. Um, you know, it was, 
we didn't really have a ton of the like tools that are available now to to do a lot of different kinds of podcasts. I mean, we used GarageBand just because it was what was on our Mac that was in our office. Right. Um, so, so you, you know, your your question about sort of how podcasts have evolved and become more innovative, you know, I I think um, the the medium has evolved overall and and there are just so many more podcasts out there um so i i think really the big challenge is um how do you stand out like and and it i think it truly comes back to that original question that kurt asked well what's it what what will it sound like and and for me when i've listened to you know uh different um, entertainment podcasts or educational podcasts or um, true crime podcasts, whatever it might be, like really that focus on kind of the intimacy of the podcast and 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 what it truly sounds like. Like I think that's um, you know that that's the 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 through line from fifteen years ago. Yeah, maybe maybe a little more production design intentionality in that is is a way to 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 connect with those audiences. Uh, well, uh, I think my next question sort of piggybacks on how it's one of the doors that I think opened up for you with the podcast. And I think often think of our our former Pacific Northwest colleague, Dr. Jennifer Joslin. You know, when when my favorite she, yeah, <laughs> uh, there's some good ones down there. Yeah. So when Dr. Joslin was president, um, one of her, um, you know, sort of mantras was find your Nakata major to guide your engagement with the with the association. And I don't know if you would necessarily call it your Nakata major, but the the technology piece has been a bit of a through line. I think podcasting probably opened a little bit of that door for you. You know, we talked about some of the leadership roles that you've held related to technology. And I know that you've been a witness to this this technological influence over the the arc of your career um you know from your vantage point what have been some of the key technology technological game changers in our work over the span of your career and you know do you have thoughts on like what's next in relationship to advising and technology over the next decade predicting the next decade is going to be really really tough um i mean so so that would I consider Nakata the technology my Nakata major? Yeah, I probably would actually. Um, that it's the thing that I tend to be most interested in and energized by. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of consolidation in the technology um, arena, and and <clears throat> you know, I it, it especially interesting being at a university that tends to sort of build it themselves rather than buy stuff mm. off the shelf. Um, so I think that, um, you know, when I first started as an advisor, um, you could only log in to the student database from certain terminals. Like, like, so we had, you know, I had uh, three term, uh, three terminals that I could log into <laughs> that to access the student database. And, and so when we all of a sudden got these little cards that would spit out a random number token and I could go and 
log in from a different computer on campus and use my little token um, to, to generate that random number that knew it was me. Um, you know, I, I viewed that as a game changer <laughs> in 1994, 95, when it first happened. Right. And, and so it's um, that to me has been sort of the evolution of the technology is um, advisors aren't, um, like advising doesn't just happen in your office anymore, right? It's, it's happening, you know, kind of wherever the students are, they can seek advising and, and whether they're getting that through uh, a podcast that they're listening to or a website or, um, even, even some of the, you know, kind of chat features that are, that are, you know, seem really prevalent now. Um, so I think <clears throat> for me, um, you know, witnessing kind of the, the influence of technology, it's really been in service of access to more and more information. Um, and, and so I've, I've kind of appreciated that, um, but I can, I can really say the game changers have really been that students can get the information right when they need it um, and answer the question that they're really trying to ask. And I think the, the advisor's role now is so much more about synthesis and context and and that is what we're really really great at um and and so i that's that's the thing i'm really uh i love about about the technology as it's evolved i it's, i you know i was chair of the tech in advising uh commission at a time when facebook was just getting started and so we had like pretty vigorous debates in mm-hmm. in those commission meetings about the role of social media in academic advising you know should we be quote unquote friends with with our students and and what role does that you know does does that mean that we're trying to actually be friends or not and so i mean just some of those conversations early on with regard to social media. And now, you know, it's like every school has a Facebook page and an Instagram and Snapchat and like, you know, kind of all the other things that go with it. Um, but those, those early conversations were like, God, should we be doing this? And, and I think if I, if I think about my major being technology, it, it's that, um, yeah, you, you you just see if it's going to serve the students, um, and 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 then um, be committed to um, you know making it work for them, um, and 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 enhance that opportunity to connect and help them synthesize. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. 
Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think, you know, what you're talking about, especially with just all the different choices, there's a democratization about it. So students can find their entry point for getting the information that they need. And, you know, I remember back in the days we were we were always those of us who were really invested in sort of developmental and educationally focused advising were were pining for moments where that 30 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever we had with students. We didn't have to deal with any of the prescriptive stuff, you know, or minimize that and can really, you know, get into the the meaning making and the conversations and the types of things that you, you've referenced as being sort of memorable. And, yeah. and you know, it feels like in some respects where, you know, the technology aids and abets that, which is, which is, I think, a, a real positive or a plus. Yeah, I, I mean, thanks for reflecting that back to me, because it, it, it makes me think that one of the one of the big wishes for, you know, a generation of advisors was that students would come like, like that there was some sort of technology tool that would allow students to kind of plug in p- potential schedules and see where it would lead them and move things around. And, you know, and and now, you know, like every, every school, I think, has some iteration of that, whether they buy it off the shelf or whether they built it themselves. Like there's the the planning tools that enable students to um, tweak class schedules and see potential outcomes um, or, or think about like, well, can I add a minor or could I do a double major? Like some of those types of things, I, I think, you know, I, I loved it when students would walk in with three different schedules and say, like, mm-hmm. well, you know, they'd sort of flop them down and say, which one should I do? <laughs> and, and then, and, you know, and rather than sort of me lean in and say, like, well, look, you know, you got chemistry there and biology there, I, I would inevitably lean back and say, you know, okay, well, tell me, tell me what you see are the advantages to each of these and, and, what are some of the choices that you've made here so that you can get some insight into what, what their higher priorities were, what their goals were. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I love those moments with students and, and the technology now just makes that part of it more accessible for students. So I mentioned in the bio uh, at the top that you're, burn survivor. And I know from past conversations with you and, and following you on social media, that that's, that's part of your identity. And, and I'm curious how, if at all, that shows up in your work with students, whether it's your approach, your philosophy, or even how you help them navigate their, their journeys. Thanks for asking about that. Yeah. I, um, I was burned when I was four in a camping accident. And so I've never known any other face looking back at me in the mirror, really. Um, and, and so I think it, when I, I mentioned that I started working down at Harborview, uh, one of the things I did there was uh, help start a burn survivor peer support group that was uh, fund, funded in part, uh, or at least developed in part, uh, in partnership with a, a grant through the National Institute on Disability research and rehabilitation. Um, 
and and the peer support program having meeting people who have been burned in very different times in their life made me realize that there are a lot of people who sort of wanted to be put back the way they were um you know and and one one person who was on our advisory board uh, he was the burn survivor and his wife was also on the board. And she, she sort of laughed about it much later, but talked about like bringing in pictures of him to the doctors from before he'd been burned and, and essentially saying, you know, well, here's what he should look like. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, like this is, this is, and, and so that question of, how does that inform my approach or my philosophy? Um, you know, it's it's that you're you're having this experience, you've had this experience, and and you you're you're not going back. Right? Mm. Um, you know, yesterday's version of yourself is is gone, and so how are you preparing yourself for the future version of yourself? Um, and so I think that's, that does inform my work with students is, is to help them, you know, not sort of mourn the, the, the past quite so much and to really set their, set their eyes to the future of who they want to be, what they want to be. Um, and, and sure you can answer questions about, um, you know, what the career is or what kind of job or what kind of grad school, like those, those are, are byproducts of, of a, a much stronger vision around, you know, not necessarily, you know, your, your to-do list, but your to-be list, like, what do you want to be? Um, and, and, and then let the, let the, the, academic components of that serve that that bigger vision so so anyway i think i think that's that's a big part of it um i i I will also say like some of the best conversations i've had with students are ask about their scars you know Mm. like Mm. i mean you know i um just got back from i don't know a week at disneyland a couple weeks ago and and um you know, I, 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 I have visible scars that people can see. And so, um, I can, I, I watch people looking at me and, and, Hmm. and, um, I'm, I like it as a, as a door in like an opportunity, right. To, um, and so, so when I've had students in my office who've, you know, had some sort of scar. Hey, what happened there? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I call myself a connoisseur of scars. So, <laughs> um, and so, and so, you know, yes, I'm, I'm actually asking about their scars, but, um, but I'm also asking about their scars <laughs> right? Yeah, and their story, right. And their, and their story and what they're bringing and, and asking them to, you know, kind of reveal themselves to me. Right. And so, um, so I, I love a good scar story. Um, and, and hearing students talk about 
that is uh, a big a big part of how I like to engage with students. I really appreciate you, you know, sharing that, Clay, and talking about particularly that notion of helping students navigate change. And, you know, they're okay, you can't go back to that. We got to move forward. And I think about that from an administrator standpoint, too, even as a director, you know, that's one of the things that when you have employees, people are reporting to you, sometimes, you know, you have to move forward. <laughs> There's a change in place at a big institution and, and you know, okay, yes, we used to do it like that, but now we're going to do it like this and we have to progress and move forward. And so I, I imagine that you've seen <laughs> some of that in your time as a leader. For sure. Too. For sure. So, um, you know, we're, get, we're, I could talk all day, but we got a few, we're, I know we're winding down here. So I have a few more questions that I want to put on your plate. So we're on the precipice of Nakata holding its first annual conference in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle back in 1986, well before you and I were in the profession. Uh, so we've had the pleasure of serving on the conference planning committee. So give us your commercial. What, what excites you most about having Nakata come to our backyard? The Pacific Northwest is um, one of the most beautiful, most innovative, most forward-thinking, liberal parts of our country and maybe parts of our world. And, and so to bring Nakata, an organization that is committed to looking globally, but, but acting really at an individual level with, with students and professionals. Um, I think it's just such a great opportunity to be with your people, think carefully about the profession and, and, and be in a room of, of people who are committed to making your profession better. And, and by doing that, making you better um, not just at your job, but like a better person. And, and so I, I just am so excited to have Nakata in Portland where you, you, Portland, Portland's one of my favorite cities to go to. It's just infused with a sense of innovation and creativity. And you're, you're surrounded by, great food and, and, you know, like one of the world's largest bookstores, <laughs> like, you know, there's like, there's like a, a, a bookstore that's the size of a city block. And, and, you know, that, that, that's a commitment um, of a, of a city to an institution. And, and so um, I think to bring, Nakata, this organization that I've been involved with for so long, to a place that really lives its values of of innovation and of um, creativity, uh, I think is is completely appropriate, uh, and and ha- has been too long in the waiting. So so I'm excited to have people from all over the world come to the Pacific Northwest and, and really realize what a, what a, what a fortunate life we lead here. Yeah. Me too. I will say me too to that. So, <laughs> um, so I'd be remiss if I didn't wrap up with a couple of Disney questions. Oh, so, um, yeah, 
you know, it was in your bio and you talked about just coming back from Disneyland. So I remember yeah. interacting with you back in 2010 in Orlando. Oh, geez, um, yeah. where it was at a, the Coronado Springs. It was at a yeah. Disney resort. Right. And so yeah. I think you had your whole family there and you either front ended, like had time at the front end or on the back end or maybe both where you were, you know, going to live it up at, at, at Disney World. So my, my two questions are this. I'm going to start with one. T- tell me about a time when your affinity for Disney helped you either in advising a student or working as a, a coordinator, director, administrator? Um, so, yeah, I, it happened fairly recently, actually. I'd come to University of Washington Bothell from the Seattle campus, and I showed up to a, a all-school meeting a little bit early, and I noticed that the director of nursing had, like, a little sticker of um, the – castle at Disneyland on, on her computer, her laptop. And I, you have to understand there are like, there are Disney people and then there are Disney people. (laughs) So, and there's always this little dance of like, well, you know, what kind of Disney person are you? And, and so I, I was like, oh, I noticed your castle sticker um, you know, have you, you know, have you been to Disneyland lately or something like that? And what I came to realize is that she's a huge Disney fan (laughs) and, and, um, you know, as much as I am. And so what that has done, um, is given us something to connect over, to laugh about, to, um, it it's just made that relationship more interesting than if I were the director of academic services and she were the director of nursing. Like right. it, it adds some complexity and fun to our relationship. And, and I, I think there are examples too where students have noticed like, family pictures or the fact that I have, you know, a big Oswald, the lucky rabbit who was Walt Disney's first character Uh, where he actually created Mickey mouse. I have a big Oswald uh, in my office and, you know, so it, 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 it's a good starting point for a conversation for a lot of different kinds of people. So, so last question here. So this may be the hardest one though. So across the broad expanse of Disney properties, right? Who, who are your two or three favorites, favorite characters, favorite characters across the expanse of it? I mean, that's a really tough one, right? Um, (laughs) So uh, I guess I would say probably my two biggies are uh, Oswald, the lucky rabbit. I really think his story is interesting. So Walt created him when he was working for universal. Um, And uh, when he left there, universal kept that property, kept kept Uh. that character. And so then he had to start from scratch and that's when he created Mickey mouse. And so fast forward Uh, about 80, 85 years, and uh, Disney still did not have control of that character. And uh, the uh, ABC, Disney owns ABC, and, and Monday Night Football was moving from ABC to NBC. And NBC wanted to bring Al Michaels from ABC 
um, over to NBC. And, and Disney said, okay, that's great. We will trade you Al Michaels <laughs> for Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Oh, my gosh. And so and NBC said, what? because <laughs> like, nbc owned universal, universal and so and and so yeah there ended up being this um big trade and it was you know al michaels got traded for an 85 year old cartoon character um the other the other movie that uh or the other kind of property that i just um i think it, it was such a moment in time you could never pull it off anymore because of all the different intellectual properties that were involved. But um, if you if you take some time and watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit and sure. you see all of the characters there, you know, whether it was Warner or Universal or uh, Disney, um, like all these different characters show up in that movie. And, and I think it was just a kind of a, a moment of creativity. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people coming together and saying, yes, let's, let's do this. I just, I really, to this day, still love who framed Roger rabbit and, and the characters that you see there. Well, I, I love us ending on a on a high note with a reference to an amazing film, and and uh, you know, Clay, I'm so grateful that we had a a chance to connect today. I think for uh, Nakata Disney fans who are coming to Portland, now you know Clay <laughs> is in the know, and you want to seek him out and 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 connect with him there. So, uh, so grateful for your your wisdom and your thoughts uh, today, and and appreciate the chance to spend some time with you. So, thanks, Clay. Terry, thank you so much. I um, I always love being in a room with you, and and I love the conversations that we've been able to have over the years, and and this just adds to that. So thank you so much for for hosting this today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Clay, for being interviewed for the podcast. And thank you, Carrie, for jumping in as guest host. Appreciate you both and looking forward to seeing you both in Portland at the annual Nakata Conference. And you've reached the end of episode 68. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow this podcast on social media at Advising Podcast. Take care and keep advising. Apple, Apple.